on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Welcome to On The Job, the show all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. And if you're watching this early in the week, uh, it might already be election time. The budget was done last week and we're off to the races. And hopefully we are off to a new government as well. But if we're not, we need to look at what's in this bloody budget because it's what we're going to be living with for the next three years. If, if, God forbid, there is another term of the Morrison government. Don't really want to think about that, but we have to deal with the reality as we find it. So what is in the budget? Well, someone who can walk me through the detail, he's all over the detail, is Ben Davison. He is a co-host of the Fab Podcast the week on Wednesday, and he joins me here on the job today. G'day, Ben. How are you going? Very well, Francis. Very pleased to be here. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, It was a weird old budget, wasn't it? Because everyone's thinking about election time Mm. and framed this budget in terms of the election. And basically, that's what it turned out to be, just a giant, please love me sales pitch. Yeah, it was really disappointing. And I think there was a lot of focus in the lead up to the budget and on budget night itself around the kind of cash handouts and the the bits and bobs that people are going to get from Morrison in the lead up to the election and really around tax time. So there's about $8 billion worth of spending between now and July 1st. That's quite a lot of money. But the reality of the budget itself is that it really exposes the limitations of the neoliberal mindset. It showed a lack of creativity. It showed a lack of understanding about how different parts of the budget intersect with each other. And realistically, it also had a really some really sneaky hidden parts to it as well, which I think surprised quite a few of us. The one that didn't surprise us was the fact that actually wages are, are going to be cut and in real terms going to go backwards. We sort of expected that. I think there's some overly optimistic projections for the future. And really, Morrison has to give those projections, even though we know that 52 out of 55 times in the past, they've been wrong. So all the wage projections you take with a grain of salt The spending will come. There's no question about that. They're going to cut taxes temporarily once off for the third time in a row for low and middle income earners. But again, there's some booby traps in there too. Let's talk about a few of those. Even one that popped up just in the last few days that I noticed was something as important as the Human Rights Commission, for instance, suddenly found its budget slashed by, I think, nearly a third. So when you get into the budget papers, you find all these institutions which we rely on and underpin the sort of safety, security, the well-being of our community are being targeted in ways that aren't top-line headliners, but they're there. Oh, and, and it goes right through. And one of the things that Van says is, that the Liberal Party talks about these groups as they don't vote for us anyway. So you've got cuts to the Human Rights Commission, you've got cuts to arts and culture, you've got cuts to public schools, you've got cuts to universities. You know, over the last few years and going forward, universities have $3 billion cut from them. These are huge sums of money. Public schools, over $550 million in just the next three years. So there's a lot of cuts in there The sneakiest one of all that didn't really come out on budget night but has come out since is that there's $3 billion worth of cuts in a little line item in the budget that's called decisions taken but not yet announced. This is kind of a government favourite and has over time become more and more the place where government puts slush funds. So in the lead up to an election, you might say we're going to put $20 billion. In the last budget, there was $17 billion put in that line item for things that they might just decide to announce. Now, if you want to make cuts after an election, 
but you don't want to have to justify them in the lead up, that's where you put the cuts. So there's 3 billion of hidden cuts. We don't know where they'll fall. It could be on the pension. It could be on Medicare. It could be on schools again. It could be on the Human Rights Commission. We just don't know because they're not going to tell us. So the Morrison government tries to sell this narrative that it got Australia through the pandemic, that unemployment's going to have a three in front of it. They love that one. And that they should be given another opportunity to continue the mission that they believe they've started. How much of that rings true to you? Well, I mean, I'm sorry to laugh, but the idea that a government has driven down unemployment to the point where there's a three in front of it, and yet we still have wages going backwards, the budget papers say that consumer spending will grow because households will use half of their savings. So that means that across the economy, households will lose half of their saved wealth in order to prop themselves up, in order to just survive. So getting unemployment down is good. There's no question about that. But it's also about the quality of the jobs. It's about the security of the jobs. It's about not having to work two or three or four of them just to survive. And this idea that Morrison has somehow had a successful mission because he's brought down unemployment, well, I would say the collateral damage of that focus is so severe that there's no way he deserves another term in office. We actually need a Labor government now to come in and repair the damage that's been done to the budget, to our systems around the workplace, around social security, around education and training, all these things that make low unemployment sustainable unemployment. The other aspect of that, which is never talk, talked about, which drives me crazy, is underemployment. So Absolutely. to be counted as employed or not unemployed in the statistics, you need to work one hour a week and suddenly you're not counted in, in that sort of blunt top line figure. But the level of underemployment, that being people wanting to work more hours but can't or are not getting those hours, is upwards of seven and a half, eight percent now, which is a huge problem, isn't it? And we don't get a real sense of what the landscape is like for working Australians until we take that into account. Absolutely. And on, on top of that, you've got a million people who are effectively dependent contractors. Uh, you've got nearly, I think it's around 850, 860,000 people working multiple jobs, another five to 600,000 who are a labour hire. You know, these are people who are everyday Australians just trying to make ends meet. And for Morrison to go, well, look, they're in a job and they should be grateful and we should get another crack at government because even though their wages are lower than they were and even though their wages are lower than the person they work next to and even though they've got no job security and they can't plan for the future and they can't get a mortgage or they can't probably can't get a place to rent either, frankly, they should somehow vote for Scott Morrison. I mean, it defies logic. But again, it comes back to the ideology replacing logic. And we've seen that in this budget even in the comments afterwards, Morrison was asked, there's nothing for renters in this budget. What do you have to say to them? And he said, well, the best thing renters can do if they're struggling is to go out and buy a house. Well, I mean, how out of touch do you want to be? If you can't afford the rent, you certainly can't put down a 20% deposit and then pay a mortgage. Like, that's just insane. So, I mean, and that ideology flows through to no sort of national capital works program to build social housing, housing for people who desperately need it at, at a price that they can afford. And it's still the market that's left to determine who gets to live where. And you're absolutely right, Francis. You know, there's 144 major projects in the budget. Of those, only 21 of them are actually gone through the rigorous Infrastructure Australia process and been given a tick. The rest 
uh, essentially pork barreling projects. So the question was asked, what did Scott Morrison give to Barnaby Joyce in order to be able to say we'll get to net zero by 2050 when he went to Glasgow? Well, the budget showed us what Barnaby Joyce got. Barnaby Joyce got a $20 billion pork barrel and a bunch of projects that actually don't meet productivity criteria, don't meet need criteria, don't meet urgency criteria. And frankly, I think there's a lot of places and a lot of people that would benefit from more social housing than a random bridge or a random piece of road that happens to look good in a photo op with a National Party MP. Well, it's certainly been brought into sharp focus again with what's happening in uh, northern New South Wales and Lismore around those communities who have seen their houses washed out a number of times at the start of this year. And lots of people who are uninsured, insurance is too expensive, who need housing in those communities and the social housing or the public housing availability is next to nothing. And there seems to be no impetus to do that. So that's one example. Can we talk about wages? And yeah, that is the central issue for most people at the moment as inflation grows. So I heard Jane Hume on the radio, one of the Liberal Party's mm. senior cabinet ministers today, again, sort of skirting around the idea that the government has any role in growing wages. That's not the case, is it? And because they could, for instance, support the ACTU's position on a wage claim, which is happening at the moment for minimum wage, but they just never step up to the plate. It's just not in their DNA to go to bat for workers. Again, it's ideology over logic and common sense. You know, the government is a major employer. The government is a major influence on organisations like the Fair Work Commission. If Scott Morrison came out and said, we will back the ACTU's 5% minimum wage claim, that would hold a huge amount of weight. Instead, what we saw in the budget was the Morrison government cutting jobs, cutting jobs out of Services Australia. The people of Lismore need that support from Services Australia. Well, now there's going to be some 2,700 fewer people to actually help them. So there's a bunch of things that government can do to raise wages. It can make its own workforce more secure. It can support the minimum wage claim. It can actually support the equal pay claims as well. So we know in the disability sector, in the aged care sector, there are claims for increased wages. These were people that Morrison called heroes, mm. and yet he won't support them getting a pay rise. It seems bizarre to any logical thinking person. There's lots of things government can do. And I, I'll give you this classic example. At the same time as Morrison's cutting full-time ongoing roles out of services Australia, they're spending more money than ever before on global multinational consultants and labour hire workers. Now, that's not a government that's committed to raising wages. So when they say, oh, there's nothing we can do, not only is it a lie, it actually flies in the face of what they are doing, which is bringing pressure down on wages. They're trying to bring wages down in the public sector. And that flows on through the rest of the economy. Think about it this way. You can get a job helping your fellow Australian doing something meaningful with purpose in a secure employment with decent wages, would you take that job or would you go and work for a multinational corporation in insecure work on low wages? Of course you'd take the secure job helping your fellow Australian. The Morrison government knows that, everybody knows that, and that's why they don't offer secure work. That's why they're undermining their own workforce and that's why they're actually undermining wages for everyone. And there's no greater example than that of that than their 
absolute reluctance to back the uh, the work value position of aged care workers who are currently before the commission as well with a 25% claim that their work is undervalued to that extent and they should be paid that way. They've got a workforce crisis in aged care, which means the system is, is in absolute disarray. And the one way to fix that is to provide secure jobs, which the work's there. Absolutely. I mean, the work is there to work full-time, Absolutely. If, not, if not overtime, but we still cannot set up a system where people have good, secure jobs with career paths and are paid properly for the vital work they do. And again, it comes to that ideological sense of the market will sort it out. You know, the market will adjust the wages to attract people to the workforce. But what we have to remember is that the government sets the parameters for the market, particularly in things like aged care, where you've got a funded system, you've got private providers that rely on government funding, and you've got a workforce that has to operate within those funding parameters. So this idea that somehow or another the government doing something about wages in aged care would be interfering in the market is really selective, and it's nonsense. The reality for most government-funded services is that it's not a market. It's not the same as going down to the Vic market or or going to the fish markets or, you know, you're not there with different people selling bread and trying to compete on price and quality. You're in a defined government regulated system that is supposed to be delivering quality standards that the Australian people expect. You can't do that if people are paid less than a livable wage. Economic drivers will say a breakout in wages, a 5% rise would cause a, a spike in inflation that might end up in an inflation spiral that continues to grow and grow. What's the rebuff to that? That might have held some water in the 80s or the 90s. What we've seen here, though, is costs going up with wages going down. So this is not, uh, we're not in a situation where inflation is being driven by wage demands or by wage increases. We're in a situation where actually there is too much profit taking, not enough investment in productive machinery and the capability in the economy. And these are things that government can do stuff about. It's things that corporations certainly need to do things about. But it also means that the cost of those things shouldn't be borne by working people. And raising wages allows working people to maintain their ability to participate in the economy. That should actually create a situation where business feels more confident to invest, more prepared to pay for training, more prepared to pay for better equipment, more prepared to be productive. This idea that oh, if you raise wages, you're going to have this massive spike in inflation. Well, if that were true, if that neoclassical model were true, then when we got to 4% unemployment, there would have been a huge increase in wages. There wasn't. When we got to 5% inflation, there would have been a massive collapse of the economy. There hasn't been. And when we had wages going down, all the prices should have come down. This idea that everything exists in a market just isn't correct. It's not real. It ignores the reality that people make decisions, governments make policy, and that sets the framework for how we interact with each other. We all know there are moments in your life when super plays its part, both while working and in retirement. So it makes sense to be with a long-term, top-performing industry super fund like Australian Super. It's Australian, it's super, and it's yours. Disclaimer, past performance is not an indicator of future returns. Read the PDS and TMD at australiansuper.com. 
Secure work is a big issue, as we've talked about for a lot of people who want the security of a permanent job with all of the entitlements that you deserve in such a situation, sick pay, holiday pay, and access to superannuation. What can governments do to facilitate that? Look, there's heaps of things governments can do around that. So Australia is one of the few countries in the world that even has the concept of a casual. So in a lot of the world, if you're on a temporary contract or a fixed-term contract, that can only be renewed a certain number of times, and then you've got to be made permanent and ongoing. In Australia, you can be on a fixed-term contract rolling forever. One of the things government can do is it can also crack down on sham contracting. Now, explain to people what that is. So sham contracting is essentially where a company comes along and it says, we don't want to have to pay people sick pay and annual leave. We don't want to be responsible for people's super, a whole range of those sorts of things. And so it says to people, you've got to go out and get an ABN. And we're going to then pay you as a contractor to do the same work. And right now in workplaces right around the country, there will be people who are employed by the company where they're working, people who are contractors who are doing the same work, and people who are labour hire as well. So effectively employed by a third party who then contracts them back to the company to do the work. Now, government can regulate the, the employment models. The Morrison government chooses not to do that. It chooses not to do that. Most countries of the world say, say, actually, there is a power imbalance here. If a corporation comes to you at your, at your desk or on the factory floor or on the shop floor and says, you need to go out and get an ABN because tomorrow you're either working here as a contractor or you're not working here, most people will go out and get that ABN. That's the power imbalance. Now, if the government says doing that is illegal, if the government says we're going to crack down on that, we're going to put resources into stopping that, then that's something real and tangible that creates secure employment. So there's a whole range of those types of arrangements. Digital sham contracting is another big one, Francis, and people will be familiar with the gig economy. Such a lovely term for such an exploitative system. It makes you sound like a rock star, doesn't it? Yeah. It ain't. No. And this idea that technology changes the fundamental nature of our employment relationship. Well, it doesn't. The gig economy has been around since people have been employing one another. It's just now platforms, digital technology, means that instead of a text message or a phone call, you get a notification on an app. It doesn't have to be that way. We know that there are some platform providers now who are looking at employment models, and there's lots of media about them being kind of unique or rare. They shouldn't be rare. They should be the rule. And it should be one rule for all, and that is employment first. If you have employment first, you get rid of these sham contractors, these digital sham contractors, and actually people get better jobs. And they have better home lives and the communities have more structure. All of those things are really important. We are heading into an election. It might have even been called by the time people see this. So as we head in, what do you think are going to be the issues that are resonating most with working people? Look, what we're seeing through our podcast and through conversations we have with people and so on is that people don't think Morrison's done enough to deserve another term. You know, people do feel that the vaccine stroll out put Australia on the back foot. They do feel that Morrison is out of touch with ordinary working people and that wages have gone backwards. And in an environment where the government is trying to play up its economic credentials, that unemployment has a three in front of its story, it's a very hard sell, I think, for Morrison to go to people and say, unemployment has a three in front of it at the same time as they're going, yeah, but I'm poorer than I was, I'm more insecure than I was, I'm more worried about the future than I was. Oh, and there's an invisible killer virus that 
you told us wasn't a problem, so you went to the footy, and then told us wasn't a race, so you didn't bother with the vaccines, and now actually our booster program is being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back as well. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Morrison. And look, I think Labor's doing a good job. It's staying focused on job security. It's staying focused on wages. It's staying focused on cost of living issues. And if Morrison wants to have uh, an election that's about the economy, I think he's going to fall quite badly. I mean, it's quite an important election, isn't it? I mean, we always say that these yeah. elections are important, but given the last two and a half bit years of the pandemic and the now the economic challenges we face with this all sorts of issues around uh, supply line uh, logistics, all of the stuff that sort of is a consequence of the upheaval and the, the indifference of this government, uh, whoever has the levers of power in the next few years has got some big decisions to make. So this is this is a really big moment. It absolutely is, and it again it. It goes back to Morrison has tried to spend the last two years saying government isn't really that important and people want government out of their lives. So people want incompetent government out of their lives. People want government to do things that we can't do ourselves and to do things in the collective interest. That's what people want government to do. And this election is really going to be about those two competing visions. And I think fundamentally, you know, when you look at the budget and you look at those booby traps in there around um, tax increases that will come into play uh, if Labor wins government because of the way they've structured the budget. If you look at uh, the, the the rising debts, all those things, and you look at the fact that actually there does need to be some significant change, it is an incredibly important election. And you know, I always say, you know, people make decisions and people can decide the kind of government they have. And that government will then set the framework for how we operate and interact as a society. And if in the last three years you feel that we've operated and interacted well as a society and things are fair and good, then you probably will vote for Morrison. But I have to say, Francis, very few people I'm talking to feel that way. Most people I'm talking to feel they're more insecure, lower paid, more worried about the future, and frankly, have no confidence in a man whose own party calls him a liar. And a hell of a lot more too as well after the last <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. from Conchetta Fee of Andy Wells in the Parliament. So, and the first thing you can do, of course, is join your union. Join your union and get involved uh, with uh, your fellow workers to make sure that your interests are looked after right where you work day in, day out. And of course, be part of uh, whatever activity they're involved with with the election. You can do that easily enough and uh, um, it's it's a home for every worker. Oh, absolutely. You know, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's a use it or lose it proposition. And the first thing you can do is join your union. Um, I'm, I'm going to plug the australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's the week on Wednesday link um, that, that we always plug on our podcast. And look, it it really is a, a use it or lose it proposition. And and it's an extreme comparison to make, but I, I do look at what's going on in Eastern Europe and you go, if you don't back in your democracy, uh, then you let tyranny take hold. And yeah, we're in no danger of Morrison becoming Putin, don't get me wrong. But if you don't back in your democracy, then you start down that slippery slope. And it might take 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, but democracy is a use it or lose it yeah. proposition. It's incrementalism, isn't it? You sort of see these little slips every now and then. Andrew Lamming, the Liberal MP, yeah. just now saying, you know, he's not going to pay back the $10,000 he owes for uh, taking a trip that wasn't parliamentary business and just blatantly saying stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to do yeah. it. The rules don't apply to them. And as soon as, 
as soon as we allow democracy to be undermined by people, and this is why people want a federal like act too, right? Yes, absolutely. Because fundamentally, you can't have one set of rules for the people who rule over us and one set of rules for everybody else. In a democracy, they're not rulers, they're servants, they're public servants. And sometimes I think there are some MPs who, who need to be reminded of that, and Andrew Lamming certainly needs that reminder. Yeah, he's top of that list, I think. Yeah, ben, absolutely. Ben, thank you for coming on. People can check out The Week on Wednesday with Ben and the wonderful Van Batten. Comes out on Wednesdays, but hey, also there's an edition on Sundays as well. That's right, The Weekend Wrap. Don't miss it. <laughs> the Week on Wednesdays on Sundays. <laughs> Go to your favourite podcast platform and search it up. That's it for this week's edition of On The Job. Thank you, Ben Davison, for coming in. We might catch up with you during the election, see how things are going as well. Uh, you can also send us an email at otjpodcast at protonmail.com. Uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at St. Frankly. And uh, if you are hearing this on the podcast as well, give us a rating on whichever platform you're on. It helps other people find the information and the inspiration. And we'll catch you next time on The Job.